Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where in the world you are and what time of the day you're listening to this podcast. Today, I'm joined by three very eminent um, football thinkers, writers, uh, experts, even. Uh, Dr. Dan Parnell, who's Associate Professor at uh, Liverpool University, CEO of the Association of Sporting Directors and co-founder of the Football Collective. <clears throat> Kieran Maguire, who will be known to many of you, uh, also at Liverpool University, host and founder of the Price of Football and uh, podcast. And he's a Brighton fan as well. And then finally, uh, Dr. Rob Wilson, who is head of finance, accounting and business systems at Sheffield Hallam University. Um, good day to you all. Hi, Paul. Uh, Hi, Paul. <clears throat> today's uh, topic are, on, on this podcast is a paper that was uh, produced by all three of you and I think uh, several other people as well. Um, called COVID-19, The Return of Football Fans. Dan, um, I believe it was your original idea to write the paper, so perhaps you, you might want to start um, the conversation. Yeah, no, no problem, Paul. Thanks for having us on. I think not just the guys in the room, but the authors of the paper, uh, we work extensively in, in different clubs and across the game and, and consider the industry, you know, it's our industry, it's where we work, it's the industry that we love. Um, and more than that, um, we are supporters, we are fans, and we work close with the communities that attend games. And there's a, a real issue that we've observed. And what we try to do in this, what is a, a research commentary, is just articulate some of the some of the findings that we that we have, some of the things that many in the game already know, and and why we think it's important, and why we think we need need some action now. So, I had a bit of an idea, but then I got together. Um, a load of really good people that, that I trust and that I enjoy working with and that are leaders in the field. And then we had a bit of fun writing this, this commentary that we think is, is really important to the industry. Mm-hmm. Say so it was fun, Dan. You kept editing our stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm good. When I used to work on a builder's site, I, I used to go around with a snag list. Just checking if everyone's done the job. So that's pretty much what I do now. <laughs> I well believe it. <laughs> So as, as, as you say, Dan, I mean, obviously, the three of you work, work in the football industry. You're all football fans. So um, how can I put this? There's a natural, is there a natural bias in terms of you wanting to get fans back earlier? Or have you tried to take a more sort of, you know, what you would normally do as a sort of a more academic, more sort of subjective, objective view uh, of, of this? I wouldn't say that we're biased if I'm if I'm really honest. I think we're identifying a real issue that we see that we, it is both important to us. But if you read any of the work of, um, I mean, even the, I think every every contributor, but every, certainly every person in this room, we're extremely critical of football, and that sounds negative because it is negative. We want it. We want to re- reveal uh, the positives and negatives in the game to better understand how we can make things better. So we wouldn't have to look far down our, our contributions or the narratives that we, we create to show that we are extremely critical of the game. And we do it because of our love for the game. We want to we wanna leave it in a better place because of our contribution. Um, so I would say the bias is, is put to, to a side. No, no, I, I, I mean, I, I get that. And sort of the stuff I do about Everton, I do it for exactly the same reasons. I, I want a be- At the end of the day, I want a better football club. Um, and you don't get a better football club by just saying positive things. You have to be realistic and you have to provide um, criticism where, where, where it's necessary. So um, I totally get that. Kieran, you uh, have a little less time than the rest of us uh, on, on, on this podcast. So should we, should we start out looking at it from a financial point of view first? And then perhaps we can get on to um, a more sort of fan-based view uh, a, a little later. Yeah, sure. Uh, and I think Rob, you're, you you were involved in, in in the figures as well, weren't you? Yeah, to an extent. I think what Dan says there about the the level of objectivity that all of us try and bring to uh, to, to research in the game is really important here. And if, you know, anybody that's tuned into Kieran's podcast on the price of football will know that he takes quite a light-hearted view of uh, of some of these really critical issues in in the finances of football. Um, what really attracted me to the collaboration on the paper was the fact that we could. I guess expose the 
the real financial requirement of clubs to generate revenue through uh, through gate receipts. You know, as you move down the league system, they become more and more important. Um, and Kieran's got a huge amount of data that we could pull on to uh, to, to to really emphasise that point. But the the beauty of the paper is is that it's not necessarily a a financial piece per se. It uses financial evidence to create a a level of argument, but it also puts together you know, the impact of uh, of society, of community, the, the socioeconomic side of this, the uh, the feel-good factor that so many people get from attending live football. And I think for me, um, I'd been involved in a couple of webinars with um, some pretty senior people. Uh, Rick Parry was one of those. Um, and, and I was blown away by a company called Restrata, who did some work with the ECB over the summer, who talked quite eloquently about how it was safe for fans to return, that there was a, a way of achieving uh, fans in, uh, in stadiums, not just in football, but in rugby union, in rugby league, in lots and lots of other sports, uh, in a very, very safe way. And, and when you put together the numbers um, with uh, you know, those gate receipts, particularly for those lower league clubs, we're not talking about full stadiums. We're talking about stadiums that might be 20 or 30% full. And it's that revenue that then gives the club the opportunity to continue uh, to continue trading and, and moving forward. And I think Kieran's looked at some of that on his uh, on his podcast as well. So it was really just bringing together all of those those voices for me. I think if we if we do look at the numbers, the, the clubs in the lower leagues aren't selling 100% of tickets. You know, we, we all support clubs who are presently in the Premier League. And therefore, I, I think that they're we've become accustomed to uh, a full stadium as the norm. But if you are supporting Morecambe, if you are supporting Southend United, the majority of, of the ground is in fact unoccupied. So there, there is there is without uh, actually uh, any any significant detriment to the clubs the the ability to have you know perhaps sixty or seventy percent of their normal audience attending matches um, without any any major constraints on the club itself. Uh, I mean I. I don't know about the other lads, but I've been to quite a few non-league games and, and everybody's been observing uh, social distance protocols in, in terms of you know, even the simple things, going to the toilet, get, getting yourself a pie and a burger, all of these things. And, and the fans buy into this. And I don't think the government, who ultimately are the people who are are trying to do two things, that they're trying to make the, the football industry um, self-sufficient financially in, in terms of uh, dealing with the financial consequences of the pandemic, whilst restraining its ability to, to generate income from, well, you know, as Rob rightly pointed out, is, is a very significant source is, as you go down division by division. Yeah, Kieran, do you think that the government seems to be polarising football, I think, at the moment? And we, it's in the announcement about uh, the government giving away, three well, I say giving away, uh, providing loan facility for, of worth £300 million. And And I think football is, has taken this position as um, almost how, how not to do things properly. So because there is a lot of money going into the top of the system in the Premier League, it's almost been heralded as this, um, this really bad example of how businesses shouldn't be run and how um, greed fuels um, professional sport. And I think one of the one of the really interesting points for me around letting fans back in is people continue to say, well, football's got loads of money. It doesn't need uh, fans through the gate. But actually what the research is saying is that in those clubs, in those League One, League Two clubs through the through the National League, actually, without that fan income, there there are no clubs. And that would have a huge impact on the grassroots and the community game, wouldn't it? Yes. And even if you take a look at the Premier League, the Premier League overall made a loss uh, last season. So that was in a pre-pandemic environment. You, you, you stick in another £700 million, which is going to be um, unavailable as a result of matches having to take place behind closed doors. You, you throw in the rebates to, to broadcasters. You then throw in the, the sponsors who have gone bust. And, and the Premier League is looking at a, de- at a downturn of revenue of a billion pounds but politicians see see the headlines and also they they are answerable to the public and they are responsible for the public purse um i i was look i managed to get hold of some data um earlier this week or earlier this month and the highest paid player in the EFL is is earning uh, 5 and a half million pounds a year now 
how how can how can any politician worth their salt go to go to the taxpayer? But, yeah, they're they're looking after their own jobs as well, and say. Well, uh, you know, we believe that the clubs in the EFL should therefore be uh, beneficiaries of the public purse. It, it's a very difficult gig to justify um, that they also raised the issue of clubs in the Premier League spending £1,200 million in, in the transfer window. But nobody's saying, well, hold on, if they're spending £1,200 million, somebody must be receiving £1,200 million in football. And, and that is money, which is actually sort of going through sort of the, the, the drip down effect. Um, and, and supporting some of the less wealthy clubs. So uh, my, my my concern is that politicians don't really get football. Um, and uh, it, it's it's an easy industry to knock. And, and since the, the start of the pandemic, when Matt Hancock started going on about footballers' wages, there's been this sort of this drip, drip, um, football being seen as the bogeyman and, and ignoring the fact that, that Manchester United have been open and providing meals to local school kids during the holidays, you know, the work done by Spurs in, in making their underground car park available to the NHS, all of the amazing work done by the likes of Everton in the community, Tranmere in the community and, and so on. Um, this is to a large extent being ignored because it, it doesn't fit in with within a popular and a populist narrative that football is awash with money. These people somehow don't deserve to be wealthy um, and yet football is a talent based industry like all like and more talent based than, than than most industries um and you pay market rates can i just add there paul i just yeah. think that one observation that i've seen and we, we wrote about this recently for the, the policy brief for the Hesseltine institute at the university of liverpool and we've also included this in, in our select submit uh, select committee submission is that we're in a bit of a standoff between government and football and we're seeing that being played out on Twitter through letters through Zoom and it's I find it a little bit embarrassing um around you know, the 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 way we're trying to influence and use power to, to and I think we're in a bit of a Mexican standoff. Ultimately though the, the Premier League of all the rights and wrongs that 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 we will have, they invest so much money into into community projects. Mm. And one of the, the biggest things I've seen given not just austerity for the past 10 years by this government, but the decades of decline in community sport and particularly community football, is that the Premier League have been investing a lot of money into that. Governments have been putting a bit into via the Football Foundation. But as soon as you start to, to play these kind of games, there's, you know, there's going to be consequences to these actions now. And my worry is that whilst government isn't going to step in for community sport, and these are, these are the community sports clubs and grassroots clubs and playing fields that we need to survive. The Premier League could quite easily say, look, we're going to step away and leave. This is government's responsibility and we will just look after our game. But grassroots sports should fall under the government. And we have, a, we, have a, we have some unintended consequences that may emerge because of this very public now um, and very uh, sensitive dispute that is going on within football and in between football and government, which I think could be handled much more professionally, like, like other aspects of, of government business too. Um, but is it not only, it's not just government, is it? That's at fault here. I fundamentally, I think that the you know, football's done a fantastic job in selling uh, its uh, broadcasting rights around the world. You know, the Premier League in particular, obviously it's done a fantastic job at that. But it's not, it's not done a fantastic job at selling itself in this country. I mean, you, you, you talk, and you will know more than I do, of the excellent work that the <clears throat> Premier League do, both as an organisation and, and the member clubs in the community. But actually, how many people are actually aware of that? If, if you take a look at the relationship between the Premier League and, and the likes of Match of the Day, you know, Match of the Day on, on a Sunday morning always has a slot about... Uh, what what a club is doing in in terms of uh, education, health, and so on. And if we're all honest, that's the bit where we nip down another cup of tea. So it, it's I, I think the Premier League is keen to promote it. Um, you've got organisations such as the BBC, which will buy into it to a degree as well. But as as far as newspapers are concerned, um, and this isn't a criticism, it it doesn't sell. You know the, the fact that. Yeah, we, we 
you know, you've, we've, got, we've got two Everton fans in here. I, I work in Liverpool. I've, I've seen the work of Everton in the community and, and I've had close links with, with the Palioses uh, in terms of them showing me the activities that they undertake, um, as well as many other clubs. And, and that all goes on behind the scenes. And, and even if it's in, you know, there's normally things in, in the programme uh, at clubs, but it's it's the bits we skip through because I, I'm more interested in, you know, the, the favourite pop star of, of my centre half. And I think we as we as stakeholders in the game as fans, it, it's sort of the worthy stuff that we're not particularly interested in. So the, the Premier League is is fighting a pretty tough, uh, a, a tough, tough war here because it, it's not why we are in love with football, all the good work that they do. It's a really fair point that is, Kieran. I, I'm a trustee at Sheffield Wednesday's community programme and one of our biggest, um, the, one of the biggest grants we get to do a lot of the work in the, you know, some some pretty deprived communities in Sheffield all comes through through the Premier League funds. And it was one of the funds that continued uh, over the summer, um, albeit on a, on a slightly reduced rate, but they certainly didn't try and take the money away from the programme because they knew what, what good we were trying to do. So just echo your points, I think it's a really and you've made a really important one there that actually as a society, we tend to be less bothered by the really wholesome, socially responsible stuff in favour of the, the glitz and the glamour of what the Premier League has become. I think I just add outside of the community, the official community programmes, it's, it's the investment into um, the likes of the Football Foundation that has been significant. And, then, and that entity over the past 20 years, you don't have to walk far from probably any location in the UK to find a football foundation funded pitch, and when you do, that's Premier League money. So I'm not here to I'm not here to like really su- support the Premier League or anything like that. But I'm very aware of a lot of the facilities that our gra- grassroots game relies on has had investment from the Premier League. Now it shouldn't be the case. Government should be doing this kind of work. And if you go to Denmark, if you go to Germany, you're going to find government investing in local authorities and providing these facilities. We haven't had that, and certainly over the last ten years. We've had a massive, massive decline in funding available for, for community sport. So in, in that in the absence of government, uh, although they also chip into the football foundation, you know, we I think we're we've been a much worse state without some of that investment. So then isn't the case for the isn't the Premier League's case actually much stronger than they presented themselves? I, I, I would argue um, they could be a little bit more bold and other stakeholders involved in that um, could be a little bit more bold about the impact that they do. And I think we're getting to that point as, as the impact does grow, that they'll start to be a little bit little bit stronger in how they commun- communicate that. What I would say is, you know, you've got to ask, when we get, get to this point, we ask the questions of why people are doing this. And for me, the reasons for investing in community sport and community football would be to to improve the health of the nation, to get many people more active, and in the long term, um, that reduce the burden on the NHS and on and our public on the impact on public health. The reality is that that would fall under under a government responsibility rather than that of a of a private enterprise, which is the Premier League. So, I want to do it properly. I want to do it well, and I, I think there's collaborations to exist, and they and they should continue. But I also think the, the predominant emphasis of this should be on government to look after this area of work. I think you're making a point there, Dan, which which I kind of agree with. But I'm left thinking, I watched back the the parliamentary, the DCMS parliamentary committee for, I think it was last week, wasn't it, when um, Richard Masters and Rick Parry and Greg Clark gave, gave evidence. And I listened specifically to the Richard Masters uh, question and answer session and at no time did he really ever defend the Premier League he answered the questions that were I think they were pretty deep they were pretty challenging from from the committee but he never stood up and really defended the actions of the Premier League he he kind of rolled with the punches to a certain extent and and allowed the Premier League to take a bit of a kick in didn't really say well hang on should we can we turn this question around a little bit we are investing you know billions of pounds through our television deal through our member clubs we're we're providing a lot of finance through the system all right some people might not agree that that's that's enough but what are you doing you know as a government what are you doing to support football in this country why are you relying or why why rather are you creating a narrative that suggests that the reason why there's a problem in football is down to the premier league rather than down to the government which is what you're you're kind of suggesting and 
at, at no point have I seen, you know, either Richard Masters or for that matter, um, Richard Scudamore come out and really defend the, the, the social good that the Premier League delivers. Yeah, I mean, my quick observations in that is it's not in the nature of these organisations to do it. And they would prefer to have the conversations behind the scenes and say, hang on a sec, you know, you, you need to, you know, this is not, we're not going to wash our dirty linen in, in public. And I just don't think they're, they're at that point and they don't want to be having those conversations in public necessarily. Um, that's my take on that. There comes a point in any business, if you are being unfairly criticised or unfairly attacked or unfairly treated, particularly by government, as, as, in, as in this case, that you have to start defending, defending yourself. And I actually thought I thought the performance from all three last week was absolutely appalling. If they if they represent the leadership of football, football is actually in quite a difficult place because I didn't see anything that was in any way uh, redeeming about anything that any 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 of the three said. In fact, I think they you know I think the way that they behaved towards um, the politicians w- was appalling, and it was it was. Uh, there just didn't seem to be any understanding of what the politicians were asking. No, it was, I thought it was a very sanitised, quite, dare I say, boring <clears throat> at times um, set of evidence. And I listened to yeah. most, of, most of the three hours worth of it as I was preparing for something the other day and was just left completely underwhelmed. And of course, we're now, we're, well, there's two of them left now, aren't there, rather than the three, yeah. um, because of being dragged into stuff that I don't think was initially on the agenda. Indeed. I mean, it, it should have been an exercise, you know, if it, if I looked at it from a commercial perspective, it should have been an exercise where you go in, yes, you have a duty to answer these questions and you have a duty to, to appear in front of the committee, but you also have a duty to your stakeholders to be selling your business at any, at any available opportunity. Now, that doesn't mean it has to be a you know, completely overt sales pitch, but it does mean that you have to uh, represent your interests better than they do themselves. Yeah, I think that's fair, and they they just they haven't been doing that. Um, very easy to to shoot them down, um, almost at source. And you think right back to the start of this pandemic and before we 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 really started to push the the whole concept of letting fans back into football. Um, I think professional footballers are one of the first stakeholder groups to get some real grief off the government for not doing enough when. You know, as Kieran said a little bit earlier on, some of them have been doing a huge amount in the community. And of course, you know, what Marcus Rashford has been doing over the summer has really exposed not just what the government aren't doing, but also um, the, the huge good that, um, that people with a public profile can deliver. And, you know, we get back onto that, the, the letting fans in. Let's, let's not forget that the government let football down. Um, through trialling its, uh, its live events. I think there was one in Brighton, wasn't there, Kieran? Yeah. Um, and and then all and, and then pulled the plug on it, um, and, and I don't think there's any any real consensus that that will change uh, certainly before Christmas, given the the current situation with the pandemic. But you know they actually pulled the plug on a, on a strategy that they were suggesting that football could use, and um, and I and I don't think that was calculated in the right way. Mm-hmm. Kieran, can you just go through the experience that you had at the the, uh, the game against Chelsea, wasn't it? Um, well, we, we were given uh, effectively a pilot licence uh, by the government. Uh, it, it was a friendly game. The capacity was limited to two and a half thousand. And when you, uh, when you entered the stadium, you had your temperature taken, as you do going into the Apple store and things of that nature. Uh, there was social distancing uh, in terms of seating. And yeah, it, it, it wasn't what you want, but the alternative of not going at all, it it was far better than that. Um, If if there is one organisation which is familiar with uh, dealing with large numbers of people, it's football stewards, because they are all professionally trained these days. Um, Everybody accepted that you weren't necessarily going to be able to leave the game when you wanted. Um, The the opportunities to do things such as... uh, stand the west end leaves first and if you're in the east end you 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 sit you sit there for 10 and 20 minutes but you know that when you signed up for the match so um during the match itself everybody wore masks now whether that should should take place you know again they were taking the most cautious approach uh and, and as we are finding out more and more 
about the transmission of COVID-19. I think these things can be built into what the what the protocols should be on a match by match basis. Um, the, the, the main pinch points are, are going to be uh, transport. And, and yeah, there were there were transport issues so that they arranged for more car parking space. So therefore, there was less use of public transport. What should we do in terms of away fans? Well, there were no away fans uh, organised or allowed in. The rationale behind that is that away fans are more likely to be travelling four or five people in a car. Clearly, coach travel um, is, isn't uh, isn't uh, appropriate given the, tra- the transmission issues there. And I think the fans will buy into that. Um, there, there was um, there, there, there were uh, calculations done by. Uh, national health offices in Brighton was there a subsequent spike uh, in the 14 days after the game there, there was no impact at all so um, the opportunity for limited fans numbers of fans returning to the games that the case for it is is very positive a from first of all from a covid perspective secondly it from a financial perspective and thirdly and, and I think we really do underplay this it's good for the fans themselves. You know, they, the, the number of people that I know purely through football, blokes of my age who, you know, a, lot, a lot of blokes, yeah, they're divorced, they don't see their kids very often. And to be able to go to a football match and have some form of social interaction, even if it's a socially distanced conversation, that could be the only, per, that could be the only opportunity um, individuals have on, a, on, say, a once a fortnight basis to have a chat with somebody. All of this has been disregarded uh, and it was seen to be a knee jerk reaction by the government um, following the success. And it wasn't just the, the issues which, which we had at Brighton. Um, it was uh, the, the, the EFL had trial matches as well. All of those worked extremely successfully. And then when the game thought, right, we've proven ourselves now, you know, the, the idea and I still think it's, it is a perception which is pursued too often by too many people of football fans cannot be trusted uh, and they'll be doing the conga uh, uh, you know in in, in the in, in the concessions they just go there to football matches to, to get drunk uh, and things of this nature you know ideas and and behavior which has not been taking place for a generation or more um and, and until that narrative and until that unfortunate still commonly held belief by people who are unfamiliar with the game uh, takes takes centre, it's going to be a real challenge for the game. I mean, I'll just add to that. I totally agree with what, what Kieran says. We've got, I think things that are stopping this is, it, it doesn't make sense. It's nonsense. There's no research or evidence to support it. Um, the thing that, that gripes me is that, Professor Jonathan Van Tam, so he was the, the government's deputy chief medical officer, and he said any closed or crowded spaces might cause a transmission of virus viruses. So when when we're on social media and when we see the news and photographs emerge showing the London Palladium, um, showing events with the audiences all next to each other, okay, separated by empty seats, we just we're sitting there watching it and just saying we're getting stitched up again as football fans. It's it's illogical. If socially distant events are taking place indoors, um, then why can't it happen in open spaces for football clubs? And we could do it. We can give them even more space if we need to. We could do it much better. And as as Keenan was alluding to, football fans are probably the most regulated fans of all sports in the UK in terms of how they are managed um, and how we know who they are when they come in. So even, you know, the, the culture secretary, Oliver Dowden, said he accepted people's frustrations on the inconsistencies. So they've mi- admitted to themselves it's an absolute mess. So it's one rule for one group and a different rule for the others. So, we're, I mean, we are all, we all want this to be done safe, safely. We're very concerned about the, the public health crisis, but football and their supporters need to be treated fairly. And for decades, fans have been treated badly by government by police authorities and the and the press, so we're just asking for th- this this fair treatment and a, a safe return um, for football fans, so we can have some hope and progress. I think if if I remember rightly, Dan, when we were discussing the the evolution of this paper, it was the it was the photographs of the theatres and the um, I think Kieran, you might have been involved in one actually the um, in a hospitality suite watching a game 
um, and it seemed to be okay to watch uh, watch a football match on a screen um, or to watch a, a play or something like that in a theatre with a few seats between you. Yet you can't put a couple of thousand fans in a in an open stadium. And thinking back to Paul's question earlier about bias, if there was any bias, it was must an annoyance that that something illogical was going on, which was which is why we drove the the paper in the direction we did. I think. That's right. Two, two, two weeks ago, uh, yeah, two weeks ago, I went to the Amex Stadium. Uh, I'm a Brighton Hove Albion supporter, um, and, and I watched us play against Tottenham Hotspur in a hospitality suite through a, a on a giant screen indoors. So um, you, you cannot tell me that. And it, and the same thing was happening at Spurs itself, by all accounts. But they had to have. They had to have blinds down so that you couldn't go to the window and actually watch the match. Uh, and and you, there was this actually you know, slight disconnect because, of course, with a with a with a TV broadcast, especially on a pay per view, you're five seconds behind the action. So you know, it, it, it's this ludicrous uh, set of protocols which which has allowed fans to watch football matches in cinemas indoors, where we you know the the evidence appears to indicate transmission indoors. Uh, is 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 a greater risk because uh, places tend to be warmer. Uh, yeah, we're in we're in November now, so we know that the virus struggles to 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 be transmitted uh, outdoors because it doesn't particularly like the cold itself, and and things of this nature. And and none of that has been taken into consideration. Um, that there are pinch points, and certainly tra- it's it's not actually in the stadium itself. It's getting people to and from the stadium. But you know, there, there are ways and means of dealing with this. Uh, you know, you, you can. You, the government could have uh, given the, the approval for uh, increased parking on single yellow lines and things of that nature within, uh, say, one and a half mile radius of the stadium. Um, and if, if this had been addressed, um, I, I think it would have shown the government had an understanding of what is our national sport, but also is one of the most successful exports of the UK um, in terms of the last you know, t- 25 years since, they, since the creation of the Premier League and, and their ability to go out and sell, sell the product. It all I was just going to add on, the, on it in terms of the <clears throat> return, Kevin's outlined a few things that he's seen at Brighton. Obviously, Brighton's got a 30,000 capacity and they, they had two, two and a half thousand in and they, they the last game I have observed was Ross County having 300 fans return. And when they did that, they, they contacted their existing fan base. They looked at families and households that could that could join together. They looked at local fans who could walk in and travel short distances. They had all those measures in place to make sure they're in line with the government. All, all stuff that makes sense. And then we talk about about then what comes up, and Kevin's mentioned it, and and it comes up all the time, and I've, I've been hit with it on social media, is, oh, it's the, it's the travel. Now, I guarantee if I go to my Sainsbury's on a, on a Saturday, there's more. There's, pro- there's probably about 3,000 cars lined up in the car park, and there's a McDonald's next to it, and a B&Q. Sorry for all this product placement here, but there's, <laughs> there's cars everywhere, there's people everywhere, and the supermarkets, everyone's going around touching tins and putting things down, picking things up, putting it back. You're not going to get that at the football match. You're not going to get that many people throughout the day, throughout a weekend. So I think people, they want to bring up this this transport argument. But again, there's no evidence. No one's saying we're going to bring 40,000 fans back to government um, on Boxing Day or whatever. That's, we're not talking about that. We're talking about progress. And it's that economic hope so cl- clubs can begin to plan for the future and probably borrow against that future and hope for the fans. So that there's going to, and we can build on that and show that it can be done safely and that we can learn and develop over time. So who, yeah, who, oh God, Paul. Who's, who's responsible then for putting, first of all, for, for putting that plan together and then presenting that plan to government? My, my, my understanding um, that government bodies, including uh, government-funded sports ground safety authority, who is overseen by uh, the culture secretary, Oliver Downden, has had these plans in place since the summer. So everything is in place for this for this program program to work. We've run the pilots. So run, as far as I'm concerned, it's not an evidence-based decision. It's um it's there's something else going on. 
It's really, it's almost paradoxical, isn't it? So we, we talked there, in fact, you just mentioned, Dan, you know, we're not talking about 40,000 fans coming through the gate here. Um, I was chatting to head of football ops at a, um, at a League Two club um, not so long ago, and he was telling me that, you know, they might have had nine or 10,000 seat capacity, let's say, in their stadium. He said an average gate for them might get towards 4,000. So their budget is set on 3,000. So 30% of the ground could be full. He said, you know what, if we have to go down to 20%, we could cope with that. But that fan income that we would get through that 20% of our total stadium would be near enough what we'd budgeted for anyway, so we could sustain our business model over the short, medium and even long term. And then you have this crazy situation where businesses are going out of business left, right and centre because they can't generate income. So they have to go to the government to use a furlough scheme or they have to use the, the grant scheme or the loan scheme. And football's got an opportunity here to help itself, which is exactly what the government are trying to get it to do, look after itself. It's why we keep hearing Oliver Dowden say, you know, you spent 1.2 billion quid in the transfer market over the summer, yet they're, they're not allowing them to look after themselves. And then um, at the end of it all, they then don't help them out with the, um, with the, with the funding package either. So I think it goes back to the arguments we were having earlier on about um, this narrative that's been created around professional football and that, um, that football in some way is being penalised for, um, for the way it's conducted itself over I don't know, generations of people, I guess. Just, just a quick one there, and just maybe looking at League One, League Two, um, some of the, the, the leagues that don't have the, the big TV rights deals and the money. The government needs to be careful because these, these clubs could collaborate and decide actually it'd be good to go into hibernation and yeah. take furlough and step out of, of the system and collectively agree to, to, to something slightly different. And it might be much better for them just to accept government money from a different route way and, and take away that, that football support. Yeah. Shouldn't forget the tax revenue that we generate through football, um, the support that that gives through exchequer funding and then ultimately goes to, to other sports as well. And I can't remember the number off the top of my head. Kieran might know it. Um, uh, but it's, it's, it is significant and it has a huge impact right across the landscape, doesn't it? Kieran, con- conscious that you have to leave in a few seconds or a few minutes. Um, anything you'd like to add to it? No, no. I mean, all I can say, it's been an absolute delight working with Rob and Dan and the other people on the paper because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a non-research academic, so uh, I, I really enjoyed it as a, to step outside of my comfort zone. But we all want the same thing. We, we, we all want the game to survive, to be sustained, and we want to be proud of it as well. And I think we are all proud of it. You know, Rob's involved, as he says, at Sheffield Wednesday. I, I, I know... That for in, and I've said on, on many occasions on, on the podcast that I do that Everton in the community for me is one of the leading uh, ex, you know, exponents of how you can integrate into the local society and, and make a very positive difference. Um, and this isn't being communicated uh, as a populist narrative. Uh, and, and football is being made to, make, to be a fall guy um, due to uh, central government and, and individual people within government and, the, and, this, and, and, and I'm not party political in any way shape or form trying to to pass the buck on, onto onto the game which is completely unnecessary yeah odd set of circumstances where you as you say pass the buck onto the game but then don't allow the game to generate the revenues it needs in order to do that yep uh, terrible yeah, paradox yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know there's many many things the government have got wrong in a very difficult year, but this seems to be it just seems to be a crazy situation. And, and it's easily solvable as well. Now, now you know, if, if we are, we are presently down due to having experiencing a full lockdown, I think actually fans would say, okay, during the full lockdown, we understand not going to football matches, but the full lockdowns only come into being in, in the last ten days or so. You know, the, 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 they've had six to eight weeks, whereas Rob said. Uh, and Dan said we could have had matches taking place before X thousand uh, each time. Um, and there's there's benefits in terms of the product because I don't know who we're playing this weekend. I've, I've become so disconnected because watching fo- 
what watching a glorified training exercise and that's what a match before a, an, an empty stadium is it's a glorified training exercise has no emotional investment i think we've all said historically that the most important people in the game are the players and the fans and if if Hopefully, the, one of the few good things that can come out of this is the realisation taken by the football authorities. Um, and, and I know that they say that this is important, but they don't, they don't buy into it. Yeah, we are patronised. We are simply just used as, as walking pots of money. Um, I think they need to realise that their product is, is dependent upon us turning uh, an empty, static stadium into a living, breathing creature, which provides the the atmosphere and the environment, which the TV audience loves as well. I think that's a massive point. I think for the, a massive point in terms of the fans' impact for the, for, for the clubs when you go lower down the leagues, but also in terms of that product. is, And what we talk about in the paper is that football is co-produced. And for many years, people haven't accepted that it's co-produced. And fans have been like the, you know, the, the ignored step, stepsister or stepbrother that, that's out the way when actually... It's a key aspect of, of the football ecosystem. And without fans, then football's not going to exist. And I think it's about time that the football and, and certainly now government start to realise that. And hopefully we see a government-led review of football. And we've called, called for it, like a, and that's, that's led by the fans, but also that we've also, as well, but we've also called for a, you know, a grassroots football review as well in terms of looking at what's going on in the game and, and supporting that area. But we, like Aidan said, we just want to we, we want progress and, and hope, and there's evidence to say it can work, and very little against it right now. If there's not much evidence of leadership at Premier League level or uh, Football League level, um, have you come across any evidence of the form of leadership that's required at club level? I mean, I know I know I know you talk to you know senior people within the clubs. I I, I talk to a few as well. Um, have you seen anybody that's prepared to take on, sort of take the baton and run with it? In, in, um, in terms of promoting the argument back to government? I think there are a handful of club owners that probably look to do that. But the, the reason why they're not more vocal is because ultimately they're trying to look after uh, a business that they've acquired and they're trying to run um, in a, well, for some of them in a, in a sustainable way. And unfortunately, the higher up the, the pyramid you go, the more self-interest that you uh, you discover, um, you know, the, the big six, for example, trying to take a larger share of the TV deal because they uh, perceive that they they generate the TV audiences, um, and then there's always somebody that loses out at the bottom. And I think, you know, to answer your question a little bit more specifically, rather than so vaguely, um, club ownership tends to be on a bit of a continuum. So you have those that really care about the game and the uh, and the way the game should be evolving. Um, uh, Accrington Stanley, uh, Andy Holt at Accrington Stanley is a really good example of somebody that seems to care deeply about the, the community connection with the game and the fact that that football club needs to run in a sustainable way. Just one example, there will be lots of others. Um, and then you have others at the other end of the continuum um, that are purely driving it through self-interest. And of course, we've seen lots of instances, haven't we, of, of owners coming and going and, and making some pretty ordinary decisions that you know, have had the fans so far from their uh, mindset it's been fairly unbelievable um i i think this this question really relates to the governance of the game uh, relates to the the interrelationship between uh, the premier league and the efl i don't think regardless of uh, of what they say um i don't think there is a a, a joint voice uh, across those two bodies but i go one step further i think that the governing bodies themselves have lost their power um, their urgency and their legitimacy within their uh, within their government governance structure. I think the clubs themselves have become too powerful, uh, and that's why we don't seem to have a unified voice. Um, and and if anything comes out of the of of the current global pandemic, for me, it's that there's an opportunity to reset the the whole ecosystem, as Dan describes, um, the whole governance of of the game. Whether that needs to be driven by or regulated by government, I'm not I'm not entirely sure. Um, I think there should be enough leaders within the game or at least outside the game that can come into it to, to, to generate a better system that is more collaborative, that understands that the only way we have a football match is that we have two teams playing each other. 
The only reason we have a league is when you have 20 or 24 teams in that situation, all agreeing to play each other. That's what ultimately generates the product. Um, that's the product that fans consume. And as soon as you get consumption, you get finance. And that's what drives the, uh, drives the whole, uh, the, the balance sheet and the income statement, so to speak. I, I mean, Rob, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think for the clubs I've worked with, I've seen massive leadership and there's a lot of um, disclosure around the financial situation going on and a lot of like des- desperate engagement with MPs, um, politicians within their constituencies, but also um, strategically as well, trying to influence the, the agenda and just show them what, you know, the, the realities of the, the situation. Um, I think what, what Rob alludes to then is, is actually... Is, is bang on in terms of the issues we're facing with governance. So we don't have that that, that collegiate collective voice uh, that is fighting for the you know the progress of, of the whole and ecosystem. We're seeing things that is is quite fragmented, quite fragmented, and people that are looking after certain specific agendas. Um, but certainly at a club level, people are you know they're desperately trying to share what was going on to stimulate some kind of change and action from government, but it's, it's fell on, it's fell on uh, deaf ears. They just don't seem to, I don't know. I, th- I just feel that the clubs have been given too much power in the, in the whole governance relationship with their, with the league organizer. And I'd like to see the, the Premier League and the, and the English football league wrestle back some control from the, from the member clubs, because all you find is that all these big decisions, the discussions we've had today fall down the, fall down the cracks and into the grey area and the, the clubs will say we need the EFL, the fans will say we need the EFL or the Premier League to do a better job for us, um, the EFL or the Premier League say well we're representing the needs and views of the clubs and it's therefore nobody's problem um, but it manifests itself in you know, people like Dan and people like Kieran and in, in the hundreds of thousands of fans up and down the country that then you know, can't access their team or are, are being charged ticket prices that they can't necessarily afford when they don't need to um and so on and so on and so on so it is complete power game for me i may add that we could view a a very different game and a very different discussion going on if if football were together we've seen the power of of one player and what one player can do with passion enthusiasm and drive for change if you start to then equip if you start to bring together fans, football clubs, football players. Um, you could have one of the most powerful organisations and lobbying organisations that this, this country's ever seen. And I guess the power of lobby is quite important because we've seen how much money horse racing has received um, out, of the, out of the funding that has been, been released, I think, yesterday um, and how you know the close relationships that they have with MPs. I'm not saying this is right, um, but certainly we... We're working what we'd say is a very, very poor government um, that is not looking after society properly. And that is not based on personal opinion. It's based on a decade worth of evidence, um, statistical and qualitative evidence to, to support what I've just said. Um, so we could do something powerful um, as, as this whole football ecosystem for, for the industry, but also for society if we, if we operationalise together. This is uh, this is turning into quite a sort of um, depressing conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think I think you know the reality is as um, as we're all dis- describing it, uh, the frustration is that the, as you say, the solutions are obvious. But if you don't have the right people in the organisations, if you don't have the right sort of structures within uh, the football league and within the Premier League, then it's difficult to see how actually you get to the point where what are obvious solutions are actually executed. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you um, completely. I think what we also have, though, is you could have some of the best leaders in any field, um, pardon the pun, um, but when the governance structure doesn't allow them to lead, um, I think there's a real problem. And yep. you know, one, of the, one of the things Rick Parry said shortly after he took on the, the chairmanship of the EFL he referred to parachute payments as being an evil that were in the game and that distorted competitive balance. And Rick Parry was absolutely right when he said that. The Premier League came out and said there's no evidence to suggest that competitive balance declines as a consequence of parachute payments. 
uh, and then a couple of journalist mates of mine decided to take it upon themselves to uh, to tweet the uh, Premier League press office with a paper that I'd written at the university uh, outlining exactly that that parachute payments had a had a big uh, negative impact on on competitive balance. Now, if Rick Parry tried to then remove parachute payments from his member clubs, there would be absolute uproar by a few of them. Um, there would be a bunch of clubs in the middle that would say, you know, fair enough, if they want them, they can have them. Uh, and there'd be a bunch of clubs at the at the bottom, the smaller ones that would say, yeah, bring it on, get rid of the parachute payments. And because you have that, that governance structure in place where each club has the same level of influence, you can never reach a consensus about the, the, the suitable direction for the game. Um, so I think we need both, as you say there, Paul, you know, expressive, articulate, very, very strong leaders in these uh, in these organisations. But I also think we need to tweak the governance structure to enable those uh, those personalities to lead as well, because at the moment their their hands are they're trying to lead with one hand tied tied behind their back um, in a number of instances. And then they get a lot of external pressure from, you know, in the case that we're talking about today, the, the government. But of course, there are you know several others um, that, that have quite a big impact on the game, not least the broadcasters. Yep. As <laughs> <laughs> a conversation stopper and Dan Parnell hasn't come back to me on it. So I must have said something right for a change. No, I'm, I'm just, I just find it, I mean, I, I love the discussions and, and obviously I love being invited on. Paul, my, my afternoon is going to be spent with Matt Slater, Rick Parry, and then a, a company called PlayerLens with, with my students on our football industry's MBA. So I'm always very aware that the things that we see being played out in public is not not necessarily, you know, it's, it's very hard to make sense of unless you're involved in it, unless you're behind the scenes of it. And sometimes we, f- we forget that, that we don't get the full picture on things. So um, I'm hopefully, hope, hopefully going to have a better understanding of things later on today. Um, but I'm always conscious that, that our journalists and, and us as, you know, spectators, observers don't get the full picture all the time. So I'm sure there's conversations and, and lobbying and deals being done behind the scenes, no doubt, to try and bring this to a, a quick resolution. And and obviously some of it is is being played out in public. So hopefully it's resolved soon for the for the good of the industry. Uh, that will be here long after the MPs and long after our current football owners and leaders. Um, and they'll be there for our future, for our for our children and, and fans of the future too, to to enjoy it and get the benefits from it as we have. And very, very, very much hope so. The the opposite of what you're saying, though, is that there are people that uh, examine football, love football as a fan, but also people like me who have got business experience elsewhere and look at, based on our experience, based on my experience, for example, of, of how business operates, uh, what happens in the world. Football is not, how can I put it? The evidence is, is is there to see that, that football... You, you, Dan, you're saying that perhaps there's conversations going on that we're not aware of. Clearly, there will be. But the evidence is such that those conversations are not actually producing any results. And ultimately, it comes down to results. And what I take from, from this conversation, which has been really interesting, is that Actually, there's not an e- not, not a very easy way forward, or there's no mechanism, there's no process, possibly not even the individuals, um, to see a solution in in the very short term. Yeah, yes. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm going to agree, and I I'm going to use a not the best, but an, an interesting metaphor. It's like when you you're going somewhere in a town centre, and you, you're driving in, and what you, you you start to weigh up how close you are and where you're going to park. And you see a few parking spaces, but you keep on going to get a little bit closer. And you've got to hold your nerve <laughs> and get a spot right next to where you want to be. And it's a gamble. And what we're seeing is people just holding the nerve just a little bit longer. And it's just that little bit, that little bit of gamble to see who folds first and who's going who's gonna to break and who's going to make the deal that's less favourable from what they want and need. So all we're seeing in public is people... People knocking them on the shoulder and saying, "Hold your nerve, just go a little bit longer. Let's just hold it out another week. The Premier League will be back on the telly, you know, and we'll be all right. And then we'll send another letter, 
it'll be all right. And during that time, the cuts are going to get a little bit deeper and more clubs, more people are going to lose their jobs. More clubs are going to be under threat. Um, but again, the pressure will steep up on either side at different points. And it'll, it'll be about, unfortunately, that's what, that's what my impression is. People are just holding the nerve at the minute. It's interesting metaphor that is there, Dan. So are you talking about the government involvement in, for, in sport there or are you talking about club ownership in the championship? I'm, <laughs> I'm talking about a bit of everyone involved in, the, in, in this, in this deal-making and, and negotiation. So people are just trying to hold the nerve. It, the Premier League could fold and say, right, we're going to look after the football pyramid and everyone take a massive hit and the game change. The Football League could fold, take some money and be at the behest of the Premier League. Uh, for the rest of their lives the government could fold and then be responsible for football uh, for years to come or they'll find the the compromise but they're not ready to find that compromise clearly Um, so yeah it's not successful Paul but I think people are unfortunately holding the nerve fascinating Really, that's my take on it. It might not be. Might not no, be no, right. no, no, no. It's my take. <laughs> I, mean, I, I just, I just find, I find this whole conversation just so, just so interesting because, um, yes, I, I think, I think you are right to an extent that there's a sort of, there's an element of brink, brinksman, brinkmanship here, um, but while, while there's, while that is happening, you know, the, 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 there's whole parts of the game that are in danger of just, just folding. And it, it does require somebody with vision, somebody with um, strength of purpose to actually sort of start knocking a few heads together and saying, we need to, we need to resolve this. Because at, at the moment, using, again, using, looking at your analogy, there's, there's nobody, nobody's winning on this at, at all at this moment in time. The governments aren't winning. The governments aren't getting any benefit from not allowing fans back in, in, into the ground. And football itself is, is, is not benefiting and ultimately, the fans themselves are not benefiting. So this is this is a, a lose lose position for everybody as as we as as we sit here today. Yeah, Paul. But I mean, I totally agree, and 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 you know this, you know this as well. Like by the government not letting fans in, it and it doesn't make sense, and it's illogical, and they're doing it elsewhere. It might not be the fight that that, that that's not the fight that they're having. So you know, there's another fight that is going on, and it, that's. The things that we see, why why are people not coming out, bringing out the the big guns at this first select, select committee uh, hearing or inquiry? This is not the one. So the, the like the, the the fight and the agenda is you know is probably much bigger than what we're being made to see. There's there's a, a different agenda on, and if the government keep fans out and keep those tensions up, the pressure's on the clubs then. Um, because they they don't have the money coming in, they can't plan for the future. So the government are constraining, and they're in a position of power. Um, when they when they decide to release that, then they have less power in that negotiation. So undoubtedly, there's stuff going on far beyond my understanding. But I do see some clear things of that would I think well that would be useful in the negotiation if I could control where when they could have fans come back or not. If I was in government, that would probably put me in a position of power at, around the negotiation table. So when I see stuff like that, I think, well, these 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 people aren't soft either, um, and they're no doubt using this around the table to influence um, things to make sure it works out for the way they they would like it or to shape a future that they would like to see. Rob, we uh, been speaking for an hour. Is there anything you would like to sort of conclude with? Time flies, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, no, I think I do. I, I would reiterate what Dan's just said. I think that there is a, a real urgency in the game to do something, but I, I like the analogy that it's, it's almost like he or she who blinks first. Um, and there's probably something bigger at stake here. And, you know, from my point of view, as, as somebody that studies, well, sport finance generally, but football finance specifically, um, I have called for years and years and years, as Kieran will have done, uh, for clubs to act in a more financially responsible way that provides sustainability and to stop this, this gambling culture that they appear to have where they're chasing um, each other, the winner takes all scenario, so to speak. And you know what, the longer um, this goes on, the longer clubs uh, are are failing to deliver their revenue streams and the more pressure that they have to put on government to, to find some sort of bailout. um, The, I think the more clubs will see, yes, go, go insolvent or go bankrupt, but I think we'll also see an era of, of fiscal responsibility at those clubs emerge from 
from the pandemic simply because clubs will realise they've got to be more resilient to, to, to a downturn in trade, just like, you know, a local coffee shop or a local florist has to, has to do as well. So, you know, let's try and finish this on a positive note. I think the you know, business sustainability and resilience could be, a, could be a positive that comes out of this long term. I, I, was, I, I wasn't going to end too positive. I was going to say, in 20 years' time, we're going to see one of these government officials dining out on this, talking about with every crisis, there's an opportunity. And look how we change football for, the, you know, for whatever agenda. They, they, in 20 years' time, they'll be doing the rounds, universities and businesses, saying about how they change football, the global industry. Um, and it might not be a change that is good for the fans, and that's what, that's what I'm concerned about. And in the meantime, we're being used... Uh, in as a as a pawn in their game, um, and it's it's not fair and it's not right. Interesting, gents. Thanks, thanks so much. Um, I will uh, put the paper on the um, on the website with, um, with with the podcast. And um, for those that listen to this, I would uh, very much encourage you to go and read uh, not only this paper but much of the excellent work that um, Dan, Rob, and uh, Kieran, to a lesser extent do obviously kieran has his own podcast and had, uh, many people will be listening to that just um to say to you to, to you both um thanks so much for your time and um uh, really enjoyed your contributions absolutely Thank pleasure you, Paul. Paul. thanks for the invite